Hello and welcome back to Counterintuitive, a governance podcast. I'm your host, Dr Paul Sagar, a lecturer in the Department of Political Economy here at King's College London. And this podcast is made in association with the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. Each week on this podcast, I invite a speaker to come and defend an idea that is to some degree counterintuitive. I play the role of devil's advocate or sceptical inquirer in order to see where the ideas will take us. Of course, whether you agree with me or my speakers is, in the final instance, entirely up to you. Today on Counterintuitive, I'm speaking to Dr. Diana Popescu, who is a colleague of mine in the Department of Political Economy at King's College London. Diana works on distributive justice, recognition theory, and the relationship between the two, in particular with respect to recognition struggles around disability rights, minority discrimination, and social exclusion. Today, however, I'll be speaking to Diana about the idea of universal basic income. The idea that the state should unconditionally give everybody money for free. Today on Counterintuitive, the Governance Podcast, I'm talking to my colleague, Dr. Diana Popescu, who's a lecturer here in the Department of Political Economy. Diana, welcome to Counterintuitive. Hello, and thank you for having me, Paul. No problem. So you're going to talk to us today about the idea of universal basic income, which is increasingly popular, but is still to many people a counterintuitive proposal or Mm -hmm. idea. So let's just begin, Diana. What is universal basic income? Mm -hmm. Uh, Universal basic income um, is indeed a radical policy proposal. And it is universal in the sense that uh, all individuals, all adults, but also some children, usually living in a certain territory, um, are supposed to get this uh, income. It is basic in the sense that uh, it is usually set around the poverty line, usually um, right at the poverty line or even lower. And it is an income in the sense that it's uh, constituted by a cash transfer as opposed to other more means-tested benefits like, uh, I don't know, food stamps or other kinds of services. So the general idea uh, in its, you know, in its most most, uh, generic kind of uh, formulation is a relatively simple one, but I guess you'll want to challenge me more on what each of these features means. Why then universal? Let's start with the first mm-hmm. one. Why should, why should this be a universal uh, income given to everybody? Um, this is actually what attracted me most about the idea of universal basic income. The fact that it comes with no strings attached, um, as opposed to some of the other welfare measures that do require individuals to prove that they are worthy essentially of receiving state um, assistance. So that's actually how I first encountered the idea. I was doing my work on social exclusion. Um, and social exclusion is a notion that applies to those who fall through the cracks of the welfare system. And um, one of the things that you notice very quickly when you work on social exclusion is how the discourse about the socially excluded tends to punish them for being in need of uh, assistance. So what you usually see is that people who fall through the cracks, who desperately need help, are blamed for their situation rather than help. So the reason why I I think everyone should get this benefit, including those who are wealthy, is motivated to a very large extent by the situation of those who are at the bottom, 
of the income and distribution because those are the ones who are most failed by um, by the current welfare test so in the same idea of being uh, treated with dignity by by the welfare state i, I think that a universal um, a, a universal dividend is also one that uh, that grounds um, the redistribution that's taken place, not in the needs of individuals or not in the way in which they are deficient or they didn't manage to um, to do something to, to achieve a certain income that is considered normal in their society, but in other notions such as solidarity, um, or it's sometimes called universal basic income, a citizen's income, because it's meant to reward um, just the state status of being a citizen and contributing in ways that sometimes can't be remunerated in a certain um, society. So actually, what is sometimes seen as, a, um, as an argument against universal basic income, the fact that it doesn't target the poor. Um, for me, you know, specifically, the poor do tend to benefit most, for me is actually one of the big advantages of universal basic income. That's, that's, that's really great, because I suppose mm -hmm. that is one of the most counterintuitive things about the idea of the UBI, mm -hmm. that it should be everybody, including the rich, should get this too. And um, so mm -hmm. maybe we could delve down a little bit so, so mm -hmm. at least for you I, I imagine there's disagreement in different amongst different theorists here but is this then primarily um or perhaps it's not one or the other a policy based around efficiency but the idea is that mm -hmm. look if we just give this to everybody although there'll be some people who don't need it mm -hmm. we'll make sure that everyone who does need it gets it mm -hmm. or is it primarily motivated by a particular view of egalitarian justice that mm -hmm. as you said a citizenship income that insofar mm -hmm. as you're a member of this this community you should be able to get this income that allows you to have a certain amount of dignity it does one of those mm -hmm. tend to take precedence for you or in mm -hmm. the field or, or is it always a mix of mm -hmm. the two um, that's a very, very good question. And the answer uh, is that you, you tend to have a mix of the two. This is one of the reasons why, so the fact that different people um, have different motivations for preferring UBI. This is one of the reasons why you do have libertarians as well as Marxists um, supporting universal basic income, because it's a, a, an idea that makes sense for many different concerns that, that we might have. So um, Marxists, for instance, argue that if you give people um, enough money that they can say no to certain forms of employment, then what you will see is that individuals will pursue um, through their own means um, more worthwhile um, forms of employment than just the, um, the bottom most job that any employer could, could offer them. And in a way, even this idea that is, uh, as I formulated it, uh, one that is phrased in, in, in Marxist vocabulary is one that might appeal to libertarians, right? Because the idea is that you empower people, you, you give them the autonomy to decide um, how they want to, um, how, how they want to, to work. But um, the, the main problem that I see with the different justifications that you can have for universal basic income is that um, some libertarians argue that you, you should have the, the universal basic income in place, but you shouldn't have other welfare measures if you have universal basic income. And this is actually a very smart argument because some of them say if 
the best defense that we can make for universal basic income is that individuals are better equipped to decide how to spend this income, better equipped than the state, which is something that the left also um, appreciates about UBI, then why not let individuals also decide how to spend all the money that now goes into, for instance, the NHS? You know, why not trust individuals to spend uh, all the money that is now uh, that is now being um, being uh, directed by the state into uh, into specific uh, policies. So it's an uneasy alliance in a way because uh, when you think about the basic motivation um, um, that is the motivation for taking away this kind of perfectionist. Um, hand that the, the, the state puts on benefits, then yes, the left and the right agree. But uh, what makes UBI a sort of dangerous proposal is that maybe once you have it in place, these different justifications are going to point in opposite directions with respect to what's going to happen with the welfare state more generally. Could you just go into a bit more detail there? It is the idea that mm -hmm. some libertarians think that once you deliver UBI, then you won't need a welfare state. And, and that's mm -hmm. part of the motivation, whereas other people think, well, this would in fact be a way of taking the welfare state to the next level. Is that is that the distinction mm -hmm. here? Mm -hmm. Yes, um, pretty much. Um, I, I think this uh, also speaks to where do you get the money? Because there is a simple answer to that question, where do you get the money for, for UBI? Because the libertarians are going to say, we are spending so much um, on people anyway in a welfare state. So why don't we just have all that money re-delivered? Um, and it's such an important question of just where does UBI leave the welfare state? Because what you want to have, uh, if you're uh, among the left-wing proponents of UBI as I am, is to have most of the measures that you have now uh, in place and universal basic income on top of those. Um, what tends to happen in actual policy proposals for universal basic income is that people are in favor of scrapping some benefits um, for instance, food stamps would be something that you don't uh, really need if, um, if people get um, enough money that they can buy food um, once a month. Um, but and, and unemployment benefits would be another obvious candidate for a candidate for a service of the welfare state that you can uh, that you can get rid of if you have universal basic income um, in place. But uh, all the money that goes into education, for instance. Uh, I think it should be there, but it's more difficult to make an argument that people need education if they don't need a job to, to survive. So it's, it's very much a, a site of a struggle that's uh, mostly unacknowledged because the very idea of UBI itself is counterintuitive. Um, this site of struggle that's going to come afterwards of where does that leave the welfare state, I think is mostly underexplored. And, and then all the disagreements that we have now between the left and the right will, will reappear. Um, although at this moment, it seems that oh, um, the left and the right both agree that this is a good idea. I suppose, though, for somebody who may not have thought about this very much, an obvious mm -hmm. re um, rejoinder at this point is going to be, but, but who's going to pay for this? How, how mm -hmm. are we going to pay for this? And so, mm -hmm. so maybe we, we could get an idea of, of the sums that are involved. For example, in mm -hmm. the UK, what do proponents of UBI suggest uh, each person mm -hmm. should receive as an you know, unconditional basic mm -hmm. income from the state every, every month? What kind of figures are we talking mm -hmm. about? Well, the most thought through project on this um, is uh, the one developed in Scotland. They started thinking about this about two years ago. Um, and we 
have a pretty good sense of what's going to be because just in May, Nicola Sturgeon came out saying that they are in favor of it. And the sum they were, um, they were talking about is 20 billion um, per year. That's going to fund about 5,500 or 5,600 pounds um, uh, per year for, um, I guess, Scottish residents adult Scottish residents and 2,600 uh, for children. Um, and uh, speaking of where, you know, of um, the fact that you, you basically can make a case that you have the money already there, 18.5 billion of that is going to come from um, revenue that's already being collected, but you just re-diverted. Uh, so that leaves you with a uh, a billion and a half that uh, that uh, is still to be um, collected. Um, so, um, like I said, because the welfare state uh, in some countries is pretty big, you always have uh, some pockets to reach into to um, to pay for this. But uh, the, my favorite answer to the question, how how do you pay for universal basic income, is to say that poverty also costs money. So there's a lot of money that goes into tackling the health costs of uh, poverty. If you have children in poverty, and this is actually one of the effects that has been most noticed um, in universal basic income, a reduction in child poverty and child obesity, um, that means a lifelong, a lifelong improvement of um, healthcare for those children who benefit um, as a result of their parents having UBI or uh, them, themselves receiving universal basic income. Um, then um, you have mental health um, issues that all of the pilots say are greatly improved by having universal basic income. And that means citizens who can work instead of taking uh, sick days. Um, in the UK, there's a lot of money that's being lost on people with mental health being hospitalized. Um, so if, if the problems get very bad, then it's not just about taking a day off, it's about being inactive for several months. Um, and it's about the costs that are currently unacknowledged of uh, women um, going into the labor market and having to, to, to make ends meet both at home um, and in the labor market with children uh, usually losing out. And, you know, we can, at the most, um, at the most um, generous level, that's close to the poverty line, for UBI, you would still be paying less than you would for, uh, you know, putting criminals in jail. So a system that is better designed also uh, cuts, uh, cuts costs in, in many other ways. So it's not like you have this, um, I don't know, this counterfactual in which there's no money being spent and you, know, you have zero, um, zero input, zero output versus a system in which we have a lot of money that's coming through a universal basic income with some benefits attached. No, no basic income also comes with uh, costs. So it might be an open question and an empirical question, um, just how much are you gaining, but you are definitely gaining something that is currently unaddressed. And these costs are usually just not uh, acknowledged because individuals are supposed to, um, to care for those themselves. Your mental health is your business. If you're a woman, having children is your business. But um, it's more and more acknowledged that that's not how a just society um, should work. 
So I guess instead of motivation being how do you make most money out of this, out of being a member of the state, we should think about what kind of society we, uh, we want to, to be part of. Right. So moving back then away from the efficiency question, back to mm -hmm. the egalitarian question, if you will, mm -hmm. isn't there a reply that comes, but hang on a minute, there's something fundamentally unfair about mm -hmm. UBI. It's presented as you know, uh, an egalitarian proposal to help everybody, mm -hmm. but at least mm -hmm. some of this money is going to come from general taxation. So there's a question of mm -hmm. why that taxation should be redistributed, not just to mm -hmm. the poor, who we might all agree mm -hmm. that it's good to help the poor, those without work, but mm -hmm. presumably significant numbers of people might simply withdraw from the labor market if they received universal mm -hmm. basic income, yes. choose not to mm -hmm. work. And, and there's two problems there. One, that will reduce the overall tax take. So that's going to make mm -hmm. it harder to pay for. And secondly, isn't it simply just not right that some mm -hmm. people should live lives of leisure? I'm tempted to say that mm -hmm. if I had UBI, I would stop coming to work <laughs> and I just go rock climbing all the time. Um, I could probably survive on UBI, just live out of my van. Um, mm -hmm. but, it, but it wouldn't be fair, right, for mm -hmm. you to go to work and pay your taxes to fund my lifestyle. So mm -hmm. isn't, isn't there a powerful egalitarian uh, rejoinder to UBI? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um well, you phrased the question in a very interesting way because it's exactly how Philippe Van uh, Paris or Van Paris right, exactly. uh, replies to it uh, in his famous article, Why Surfers Should Be Fed. Um, and it's, a, it's actually a, a play upon, uh, well, not a play upon words, but uh, it's the, the inspiration for that title comes jointly from the fact that uh, Rawls says that you shouldn't fund, uh, as a matter of justice, the lifestyles uh, of people who are not contributing. Um, Rawls' example to, was, uh, mm -hmm. was surfers, right? Beach bums who just mm -hmm. lived on the beach and went yes. surfing all day. So I think sounds like a great way to live. <laughs> yes, uh, it, exactly. So this was one part of the inspiration to speak the, ex to speak directly to this category that was directly excluded by roles from those who would be entitled to benefits. Um, and also at, around the time that uh, Van Paris was writing this uh, article, there was an entire discussion in Malibu about how uh, the wealth provision there should have not been extended to the surfers who are just coming in to, to pursue this sort of uh, beach bum lifestyle. And uh, Van Paris makes a very interesting argument, which is that um, it's not as if uh, a, a work crazy society is the default. Why should that be the default? Um, it's just that we have a work bias in our societies that make it make us see it um, as such. So a society that is truly, um, truly impartial between different versions of the good life would be one in which you would end up subsidizing uh, even the lifestyles of uh, beach bums. And why should you do that? Well, um, he identifies three kinds of resources that you uh, that you as a state would uh, would be able to tax to get the revenue to pay for universal basic income. Um, and the most interesting of those three resources is having a job itself. Um, so the other ones are uh, gifts and bequests, which uh, uh, in, in the UK actually they are taxed, but in, in other countries they are not. So you have this kind of transaction that um, produces a lot of money for recipients, let's tax it and then the revenue can go into universal basic income. The second stream has to do with um, technology. 
So um, you have uh, technological advancements that have been produced as a result of uh, hundreds and hundreds of years of technological advancements. Why should we um, see them as belonging to, to someone, specifically people who use them to, to make money? Why can't we see them as um, things that be belong to the common pool and then those who use it can pay uh, for uh, a dividend that should go to those who, who don't. Um, and the third stream, so this is the one that I like best, is that even having a job uh, should be seen as having a scarce resource because there are all these goods that are associated with uh, labor, with being in uh, employment. And then the fact that you don't want to have a job, like the beach bums don't, uh, is not something that diminishes the value of the resource. It's just like having a piece of land. The fact that you're not using the piece of land does not diminish the value of that piece of land. So people who choose a different kind of lifestyle are uh, enabling those who do want to be work crazy uh, to, uh, to pursue this kind of lifestyle. So um, the work crazy would have to pay this dividend that goes to the work shy um, for the simple fact that in a society in which jobs there is a scarcity of jobs and most western societies are like that especially now during the pandemic um, you know those who don't those who don't pursue a job even because they don't want it are still uh, are still um, are still giving others some kind of service and i really like this kind of argument that says well, you don't have to be actively in wage, uh, in, in, uh, uh, in, in gainful employment to, do, uh, to, to promote the benefit. I think this kind of argument is one that a lot of, uh, a lot of the political theories working on UBI have, have been tapping um, into. But not only political theories. So um, the UBI trend has seeped into Silicon Valley uh, lately. And one argument that people make is that people's data that you use on social media, media for instance, should be seen as a kind of resource that you tax or a kind of technology that um, those who benefit from it, which are usually uh, the people who um, who own social media outlets or you know even advertising companies and use that data you know they should pay a dividend to the citizens who only put their data in because it's the sheer fact that you are not personally um, gaining anything from your data is a little bit like having a plot of land that you don't actually use but someone else does you know um, so this is, uh, this is a kind of argument that I really like uh, that is uh, in favor of UBI um, looking at the fact that not doing something is sometimes a benefit. Um, the, the Green um, uh, Party in the UK is also advocating uh, UBI and a natural way of funding UBI um, looking at what people don't do as a benefit is to say, well, people who are producing a lot of carbon um, monoxide, carbon dioxide, should pay a tax on, uh, a very high tax on what they are producing. And then you would have uh, a, lot of, um, a lot of employers um, who would be putting a lot of money into a common pot that you then would divide to, to everyone. So these would be sort of the kind of, um, you know, philosophical arguments for UBI. But what's, 
more interesting, I guess, uh, is that the pilots that you that we have seen on universal basic income disprove this kind of worry that people um, who are on universal basic income would not work. Um, the oldest uh, kind of naturally occurring uh, universal basic income experiment is probably the one in uh, Alaska that has been going on for over 40 years. And the studies there show that uh, um, when the dividends that Alaskans receive um, every year goes up by a little bit, actually employment goes up by a little bit um, as well. Um, so what happened in Alaska is that uh, the, um, um, the, the state had this uh, peculiar legislation that if a resource would be discovered, it wouldn't belong to the person who discovered it or the plot of land it was attached to, but would uh, belong to sort of everyone in the state in, in common and this discovered oil. So since uh, this was set up in the late uh, 70s, so late 70s, 80s, everyone starts getting, um, everyone in Alaska starts getting this yearly dividends of, uh, it could be anywhere between $300 as it was in the beginning or $2,000 as, uh, as it is now. Um, and you get it by just proving that you are, uh, that you're living in Alaska. Um, and what, what they found with respect to employment is that actually employment grew up for, uh, yeah, uh, grew for a little bit for men. And for women, uh, they found that women tend to work one hour per month less uh, in years when the dividend is a bit higher as opposed to years when it's, uh, when it's a bit lower, suggesting that they have more discretionary, um, discretionary power over how to use their, uh, their time. And the pilots that are more you know, directed, not naturally occurring, that we see now. And the, the Finnish uh, experiment was the one that most recently yielded results, showed the same thing, that unemployment doesn't, um, doesn't go up. And what's interesting about the Finnish case is that their uh, version of universal basic income was directed uh, specifically at um, people who are unemployed. And they found that uh, without getting people to prove their willingness to work or getting them to apply to jobs all the time, you had the same result that people were actually looking for employment. They were maybe taking more time to retrain, which is something that the welfare state doesn't really give you time to do. You're supposed to take the first um, job that they, they find, uh, that, that you can find. And also uh, the self-employment um, uh, ratio went up by a little bit. So actually this kind of uh, fear that people tend to have that if given a universal basic income, people wouldn't, um, wouldn't continue to work is, is ill-founded. And I'm going to tell you one more, one more fact to it about that before you challenge me. Probably. Go, go on, carry on. Yeah. <laughs> um, which uh, comes from the research that's been uh, recently conducted by, uh, by uh, the Nobel Prize in economics winners, um, Avijit uh, Banerjee and Esther Duflo on universal basic income and people's attitudes. Um, so what they found is that um, people say, I wouldn't work, sorry, I wouldn't stop working, but everyone else would. 
And everyone says that, right? So most people, uh, when asked, would you continue working, say, yes, of course, of course, I'm one of the good ones. But they think everyone else is one of the bad ones who, who doesn't work. But if everyone thinks like that about everyone else, you know, it's not true at the same time. So I think it speaks to the, you know, the, the human nature of thinking you're slightly better than everyone else. And everyone thinks so. So that's really interesting because um, to... to so you've, you've given me a really good answer there about why uh, at a philosophical level, especially for those with more mm -hmm. egalitarian impulses, this, you know, can get around this objection. Um, mm -hmm. And you've given lots of evidence that the facts on the ground seem to be that, that it's not true that people will give up work and that a, a, a lazy mm -hmm. minority will become parasitic on, on, on the hardworking majority. It just doesn't mm -hmm. seem to be what happens. The, the worry I would have and to push back would say, Unfortunately, mm -hmm. when it comes to politics, philosophical mm -hmm. arguments and the facts aren't often what cut it. And if you look at, mm -hmm. say, the history of the United States and Britain in the past 30 or 40 years, we've seen mm -hmm. enormous electoral gains accrued mm -hmm to parties of the right by demonizing particular you know in america you had the mm -hmm. idea of the welfare queen in britain mm -hmm. it's the, the benefit scrounger and mm -hmm. these narratives of you are being unfairly forced to fund the mm -hmm. feckless lifestyles of the mm -hmm. undeserving poor it's been extremely powerful so even mm -hmm. though you may have the arguments on your side, how is UBI possible in the kinds mm -hmm. of democracies maybe different in Sweden, maybe different in Finland, but say in Britain and the United States, is there not an, mm -hmm. an impassable democratic barrier uh, between the theory and the practice? Mm -hmm. Well, um, in terms of uh, context, um, the current climate seems to be one that pushes quite a lot against this narrative of the, the welfare queen or the benefit scrounger, um, because what you see now is that people who are furloughed who are forced to stay at home actually hate it so they would much rather do something useful you also have at least in the uk an army of seven thousand not um seven hundred fifty thousand volunteers um who have signed up to to help with the nhs discharging patients or bringing food or things like that so instead of saying whoever is not in gainful employment is not doing anything we have um uh, a, a very focal point of people who are doing a huge service um, to all of us without receiving anything in return. So that strengthens the case that many uh, UBI advocates make that if you give people money, they would rather try to do something that they personally find beneficial for their societies rather than not do any kind of employment, uh, sorry, any kind of work. Um, or labor um, at all. I think it's not surprising that in this climate we see Scotland um, publicly committing itself to to a uh, universal basic income program. Um, you see discussions in Spain. We saw the Pope saying that a universal basic income is, I think he said, the only way of really securing workers' rights because you have this exit option. That if your rights aren't uh, aren't respected in the labor market, you can you can just um, exit it. Um, and my my favorite argument in favor of this, which is something that I'm actually writing on for a collection of uh, papers on COVID-19 and philosophy, one of the many I presume that will have this title, um, is that there's more social solidarity. So our our context is one in which this rhetoric that we are all in this together is much stronger. 
it has done wonders for the NHS, um, even though discussions of privatizing it had started rearing their ugly head before um, before the crisis. So in a way, uh, what the COVID-19 context does is refocus our attention um, on, um, on the importance of social solidarity in a way that the post-World War II period um, has done. And it's also a context in which the, uh, the, the, the truth, uh, the very simple truth that uh, worth and wealth are not um, are not matched up is is, uh, is is starting to be very prevalent because what we see is that Deliveroo drivers have been essential workers or, or garbage men have been essential workers and bankers no you know <laughs> what have the bankers ever done for us and this is exactly the kind of context I think where ideas about universal basic income um, can can be very very strong, um, and one of the ways in which I would say we can fund it going forward, and thinking of the COVID nineteen crisis, um, is to say you know we, maybe we won't even interfere and redistribute anything that you guys have managed to acquire now. Speaking to the rich, but look, we've all been in this together through the twenty twenty moment. There's no telling how much a volunteer contributed or how much a person who stayed home could have been a super spreader contributed or how much a banker contributed. So let's take, I don't know, the, G, uh, the GDP for 2020 as a baseline and say for whatever else we regain when the economy is going to, um, to, to speed up again, you know, 10% of that, let's divide it equally among all of, the, uh, all of us. Because I think that's what really worked in Alaska. It wasn't saying, hmm, here we are, it would be nice to have a universal basic income. How about you give us some money? It was saying, well, if in the future it just so happens that there's going to be a source of wealth, um, great wealth discovered, let's just, let's just share that between all of us. So I think the present moment is one where the, the concerns that you mentioned um, are, are quite thin, but also the opportunities for setting up a system that, um, that everyone will perceive as fair is very ripe. So I'm uh, personally um, optimistic. Pushing on the same kind of issue though, mm -hmm. one objection that I've heard to UBI, or at least one worry that is, is raised, is mm -hmm. that this, this policy would of course have to interact with other factors of, of our political reality. And for mm -hmm. example, again, countries like the UK, the USA, immigration is going to be a mm -hmm. major topic of worry. Yes. And one mm -hmm. thought here is, well, what happens to the already fraught and almost violent debate around, say, mm -hmm. naturalizing of Mexican citizens in America, you know, a hugely mm -hmm. controversial and difficult moment in American mm -hmm. politics where they don't mm -hmm. know how to solve this. What happens to the political right if suddenly mm -hmm. the proposition is that if you get U.S. citizenship, it comes with a paycheck every month? Mm -hmm. Would that mm -hmm. not turn an already toxic debate completely mm -hmm. supernova? And that might mm -hmm. that not be a reason to really worry about something like mm -hmm. UBI. Um, yes, I think that is indeed a, a big worry with uh, what happens to, to those who you leave um, out. Um, and how do you establish uh, the boundary? But the boundaries, first of all, because it might seem arbitrary uh, sometimes 
um, who you leave out. If you say it's only citizens, what about people who have lived here for 15 years? What about the Windrush generation, you know, people who, um, who, who see so many of their rights being um, stripped away? You know, UBI would be just one more, uh, one more reasons, one more reason to want to police membership. So I think that that is absolutely right. Um, what, what I would say is that since, since this discourse is prevalent uh, right now, when we don't have universal basic income, um, why, why would you think it's necessarily going to be more, um, you know, more damaging with universal basic income? Because um, yes, the, um, I don't know, um, the, the benefits of leaving people out would increase in financial terms, but they would decrease in the sense of the, I don't know, existential risk, uh, let's call it, that you might perceive um, um, as, you know, something that happens when, when migrants come over. Um, because at, at the moment, when you don't have a universal basic income, when uh, whatever the welfare state can afford to give you, that's, um, that's it. You do perceive welfare, uh, welfare migrants as a direct threat to, to how much you are getting. But if you motivate the uh, universal basic income that is going to be given to people in terms of social solidarity, if you give everyone a stake in growing as an economy, then more people, more migrants would actually mean a, a a bigger labor force. And if you don't say migrants are going to be given a universal basic income in day one, you say they have to be here, I don't know, two years, three years, something like that, then there is an argument to be made that for a while you will have migrants putting in the work but not getting um, the benefits. So in terms of, I, I don't know, um, discursive strategies that the left would, let's say, would have available to argue that, yes, migrants continue to be um, a good element of our societies, even though um, it, it might appear that we have this benefit that is now being distributed among more people. Now, I, I think the resources and the psychological resources that the UPI affords people, that they're less afraid of what's going to happen with them, might, might be a counterbalancing factor. So unfortunately, I don't see UPI as something that's going to end these discussions about immigration forever. But I am optimistic that we are not going to see them uh, get much, much worse than they currently are. And, you know, maybe if people become absolutely certain that they will retain this benefit regardless of what happens, you might see a reduction that uh, now exists because of this anxiety that would be reduced. But this is all very speculative. So, you know, this is how, as a UBI optimist, I'm thinking about this, but, uh, you know, feel free to disagree with this. I suppose a, a similar connected worry would be one that I've had, had myself, which is mm -hmm. UBI is often presented reasonably as a way of liberating people liberating them from mm -hmm. uh, unfair work practices because as you said before they would have an exit option if you could quit your job knowing mm -hmm. you wouldn't starve and your children wouldn't starve mm -hmm. that, that in a way makes you more free um you know, it gives you mm -hmm. independence and security mm -hmm. and, and that's obviously benefit but then a worry comes but doesn't it just shift mm -hmm. the dependence back another level to the level mm -hmm. of the state and of course we, we mm -hmm. you know UBI proponents usually are thinking of UBI in terms of a nice welfare state model where this is impartially administered mm -hmm. and delivered um, on an egalitarian basis. But mm -hmm. constitutions change and 
governments mm-hmm. change and the function of the state changes and mm-hmm. if everybody is directly dependent on the state for their sustenance mm-hmm. and survival there's a mm-hmm. worry surely that ubi in the wrong hands becomes a tool mm-hmm. of control and dependence at a level mm-hmm. f- even more terrifying than that of say corporate dependence mm-hmm. that, that, that mm-hmm. there's a there's a worry that here that by intending to liberate people we may actually Mm -hmm. open the door to something which could have the opposite effect Mm -hmm. that's a very good uh that you know that's a very legitimate worry to uh to have uh of course it's something that the welfare state does as well so uh, you, you you can't you can't say this is something new that UBI introduces, but maybe you, you, you want to say it introduces it on a different scale. Um, I, I personally think that the kind of conditionality that the welfare state is more damaging than what, what, what we would get with UBI. Um, I work on the Roma minority, and one of the things that you see with, uh, with um, welfare state uh, interventions on the Roma is that they do more harm than good specifically for this reason. Um, so um, there was this, um, this policy to give, uh, to give employers more money if they hired uh, Roma people. Sounds good, right? But what happens is that people who were employed already, Roma people who were employed already were first, by these companies were first fired by them and then rehired with the benefits. So instead of having more inclusion um, of the Roma in the labor market, what you actually had was um, that people who were comfortably included because they were good workers were now part of this sort of dependent category that was created by this policy that wanted to, uh, that wanted to, uh, you know, that had this perverse effect. so I think that the welfare state already creates um, these kinds of problems. And indeed, they, they could be, it could be the case that they affect fewer people, but that's also something that makes the people who are affected uh, less powerful in dealing with them. Um, and that's something that speaks to the kind of conditionality that current welfare states do, that they might create different categories that are all disadvantaged by the conditional measures that they put in place, but they're not disadvantaged in the same way. So in terms of the ability of people to push back against these welfare measures, um, they, are less, uh, uh, they are less empowered to do so than under a UBI scheme in which people would be equally um, affected. So this is something that you see in um, Alaska when the benefit goes beyond a certain level, that, um, because since it's dependent on oil, as the oil prices go down or up, um, the, the stipend that you get from, um, from the oil also varies. So everyone is involved in the scheme and therefore the pressure that the citizenry can put on the state is pretty high. So in a way, it's like Machiavelli's argument, when something affects the people um, who are the majority, then you know, if, you're, uh, if you're the prince, if you're the leader, you better watch out. Whereas if you divide people into categories that are all negatively affected, but negatively affected in different ways, as you do with uh, current welfare state, state measures, then you, you can control um, what's happening um, with these people and you can prevent them from voicing their concerns. So I think the, power, the empowerment that comes with, from UBI is also a, a political form of 
of empowerment. And this is what people who refer to UBI as a citizen's income tend to focus on um, quite a lot, that you you also create equal opportunities for voicing your concerns, which um, if you have someone who can spend their whole day just watching TV and tweeting versus someone who, who has to feed, uh, feed for, for children and work two jobs, you know, um, they don't have equal voices, whereas the universal basic income actually creates equality of, uh, of voice and can bring the citizenry together. Just to bring our conversation to a close, You've already mm-hmm. mentioned that COVID-19, of course, has, has changed, well, it's changed everything really, but it's also mm-hmm. refocused the debate on UBI and, and potentially made it seem mm-hmm. more plausible than it did 12 months ago. Mm-hmm. It's interesting though, because until COVID-19, the main argument that we heard in some quarters for mm-hmm. UBI was everything's going to be automated. Um, AI, mm-hmm. algorithms, robots are mm-hmm. going to end up doing so mm-hmm. much of what was normally done by humans that we're mm-hmm. going to have to have UBI because otherwise mm-hmm. societies are going to collapse. Um, mm-hmm. I was wondering, do you, how do you think these two issues, the COVID-19 crisis and the, uh, the automation revolution uh, are likely mm-hmm. to interact? Do you think that it's only a matter of time until we have to introduce UBI, or is it still much more a policy that's going to need to be fought for and won politically? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very good question, um, because indeed, um, this kind of argument for UBI, that you will have massive shifts in the labor market, something that's sometimes referred to as the fourth industrial revolution, um, is indeed a powerful motivator for universal basic income, and especially the Silicon Valley types, um, buy into this uh, argument uh, a lot. And I think that it, it, it does have a strong motivating force um, in the sense that, you know, just like uh, we have our current welfare system motivated by the fact that people were uh, quite likely to lose their health, their house uh, during the Second World War and immediately afterwards. Now, um, everyone can say, we don't know how automation is going to affect each and every one of our jobs from surgeons to, to teachers. Um, to, to bus drivers, there's just no telling how, um, how automation is going to advance next and whose job is going to be made um, redundant. And instead of all of us who are going to lose our jobs to be dependent on Job Center Plus and uh, their uh, policy of, of giving us you know, the first job that's available rather than retraining, wouldn't it be better for us to have this discretionary income that we could use to retrain to you know, maybe start our own business uh, in due time? something like that. So definitely this is a strong motivating factor that could uh, just compound what we see with the COVID-19, where again, we have massive job loss and there's no telling who's going is it going to affect Um, next because in um, maybe February 2020 it might have appeared that uh, working as a as a checkout uh, clerk in a supermarket is uh, is a much more uh, vulnerable position than than being a lecturer and now we're not so sure about that so this kind of uncertainty is is uh, is i think the same kind of argument that you get from automation and both of these together will would form the same kind of motivation that we had for uh, for for welfare state um, measures so i think that as as uh, as far as the argument for ubi goes then definitely you can see these two together and you, you there is a potential to see uh, more politicians advocating for ubi I mean, Andrew Yang in, in the United States, who was not distinguished, I think, by, by much, um, 
is uh, a figure that everyone talks about now because he was a UBI advocate. So it's possible that we see more politicians sort of trying to tap into this insecurity and trying to provide this kind of um, solution. Um, I personally think that uh, automation is something that we have encountered quite a lot since the 80s uh, onwards. And there's a lot to be said for our capacity to adapt to, to new technologies, integrate them rather than have massive, massive uh, job loss. But you know, as a UBI advocate, I'm, I'm, I'm very willing to put these kinds of arguments together and say, yes, we need it now. Diana, thanks very much for talking to me. Okay, thank you for having me, thanks.